Stage Directions is brought to you by the Onstage Blog Podcast Network, found exclusively at onstageblog.com. Everybody. Welcome to Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger, and today I wanted to do something a little different, um, especially in the wake of everything that's going on in the world, um, the wonderful Black Lives Matter movement, um, all the phenomenal protests that we're seeing, um, the changes that are um, hopefully finally being heard about um, things that black Americans have been talking about for a very long time and are finally starting to see some traction, albeit because of horrible circumstances. And I wanted to take a minute and talk about the history of black artists working on Broadway, specifically in musical theater. Now, I am a white artist. Um, I understand very much that this is totally not my place to be speaking about this, that there are people um, much more knowledgeable about this particular area of Broadway history than me. And even if there weren't, um, this is something that should be coming from Black voices. I have reached out to a lot of people that I know. Um, I'm very fortunate that I happen to have a platform and I happen to have a voice. And so I felt that it would be better for me to try to use my voice in service of bringing some education about this area that isn't talked about a lot and happens to be an area that I work in rather than remaining silent and waiting for somebody else to do it. So um, thank you for bearing with me. And I would also like to open this up to if there are any people out there, very specifically any black people out there that um, have things to add to this. If there's anything that I've gotten wrong, please reach out. Please reach out to the blog. Please reach out to me. Um, and I would love to correct any of those things. So this is going to be a very broad, general overview. It's not going to hit on every major performer, every major piece, um, because honestly, it could it does fill up giant theatrical history textbooks. So this is this is meant to be a general overview about something that isn't spoken about too much. When I um, was first taking musical theater history classes, um, kind of the extent of black representation in musical theater um, was about in Ziegfeld Follies about some famous performers and then when it came up in Showboat and that was kind of it and I think that that's wrong and makes me very angry. So this is a broad overview again it's just meant to sort of highlight the the bigger arcs and trajectories and to maybe illuminate a little bit of why we are where we are at this moment in terms of um, black representation on Broadway specifically in musical theater today, because um, I think it's important to know where things came from to understand how we got where we are. Um, so in, in terms of it's just a general background, I'm sure people listening have varying degrees of knowledge about the history of American musical theater on Broadway. So the creation of what we know of as American musical theater really came out of a combination of operetta and American ethnic theater, which at the time was Jewish and Yiddish theater. And um, 
it was um, bl black artistry and black theater, which um, I, forgive me, I, I, I feel bad talking about some of this stuff, but you know, I think we all feel bad about the history of things. So I'm just going to go ahead and commit to talking about some of the things that are very uncomfortable about our sh American shared artistic history. Um, min minstrel shows and blackface were a very, very popular form of entertainment um, throughout the 1800s, and that was considered sort of a black style of theater when we talk historically about ethnic theater in the United States. Um, it incorporated um, tap, you know, what, what the beginnings of tap were, um, what it very much still is today. It incorporated blackface. It incorporated um, what was referred to, referred to as coon songs and coon material, um, which were stereotypes created and perpetuated by white Americans about black, specifically black life in the South. Um, so what we think of as musical theater was a combination of those different kinds of ethnic theater. And then the more traditional operetta, which is basically opera, on sort of a lighter scale. Um, if you're familiar with something like Babes in Toyland, that would be considered an operetta. Um, so sung, very hyper-dramatic, melodrama, um, those kinds of things. Um, and so what we know now uh, as musical theater came out of an amalgamation of all of those different things. Uh, minstrel shows started in the US um, around the 1830s. Um, but technically, American musical theater, according to history books, did not begin until 1866 because that's when the musical The Black Crook premiered on Broadway. And that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But for many reasons, The Black Crook is considered to be officially the first Broadway musical in terms of what we think of as a Broadway musical. Um, the Black Crook um, did not technically have anything to do with black people or black America. Um, it was a Faustian tale, um, kind of, yeah, Faust or, you know, the more modern Dan Yankees, something like that. That's what the title was in reference to. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of research, um, for this because I'm again, very familiar with the broad strokes and there's even some little things that I'll get into later that I was familiar with. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more research I did, the more horrified I was by my lack of education in terms of black representation on Broadway in musical theater. And I have taught musical theater history at the collegiate level. And it's something that is not taught very much. It's something that's not included in many history books. And probably the common excuse would be that musical theater history spans a very, very long time and there's just not room for it and everything. And yeah, but I think that this is something that's important and needs to be talked about. So pre-1890s, the image portrayed of black people on Broadway was, and I'm, I'm quoting now, um, a secondhand vision of black life created by European American performers. Stereotyped coon songs were popular and blackface was common even for black performers, and this would continue for decades both in theater and film. A lot of artists became famous performing in blackface, both white actors. Um, for example, Al Jolson is very famous, and the first talking picture was The Jazz Singer, which featured Al Jolson in blackface. Uh, but black performers performed in blackface as well, and for a long time it was one of the only ways that black artists could be included in mainstream shows, was performing in that, in that way. Um, probably one of the most famous... Um, archives of what that kind of song was, and I'm going to 
circle back to this later. Um, but Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney in Babes in Arms, the film version of Babes in Arms in the 1930s, performed um, a, a number in blackface that was a traditional coon song. And it horrifies and shocks me that, um, well, I guess it shouldn't shock me because it was very common that you can watch a, a film from the 30s and see Judy Garland doing that. But um, for historical reference, that's sort of what a coon song referred to. Um, but the first real moment of significance when that's maybe changed a little bit was in 1898, a show called Coralindi or The Origin of the Cakewalk became the first black musical, um, black written musical comedy. And it was the first musical with an all black cast. And it came to Broadway in 1898. It was a one act musical written by Will Marion Cook, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Bob Cole which Cole also produced, and starred Ernest Hogan. Cook would later go on to write the first Broadway musical with an integrated cast called The Southerners, which premiered in 1904. Cook had a traditional musical education and had gone to music schools in Europe and America, but he believed that, quote, in his own words, um, I believe it's his own words, um, Negroes should eschew white patterns and work to create unique styles to reflect their unique culture rather than imitating the music of whites. Cole, however, um, one of the other writers, um, believed that African Americans should try to compete with European Americans by proving their ability to act similarly on and off the stage. And sadly, this is a debate that <laughs> continues to rage to this day. Um, Bob Cole and brothers John Rosamond Johnson and James Weldon Johnson focused on elevating the lyrical sophistication of African-American songs. Their first collaboration was Louisiana Liz, L-I-Z-E, um, a love song, and they were, they were um, songwriters. So that was a love song written in a new lyrical style that left out the, again, quoting, watermelons, razors, and hot mamas, typical of earlier coon songs. Cole and the Johnson brothers went on to create musicals such as The Bell of Bridgeport, The Red Moon with Joe Jordan, The Shoe Fly Regiment, In Newport, Humpty Dumpty, and Sally in Our Alley, um, featuring Bob Cole's Under the Bamboo Tree, which um, most people probably remember from Meet Me in St. Louis. That's um, the song that was sung by Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien in the little performance in their living room. Um, I found it interesting and very tragic to note that Bob Cole committed suicide in 1911, and it was said that his death ended, quote, one of the promising musical comedy teams yet seen on Broadway. Um, if there's anybody out there who knows more on the history of Bob Cole, I am really interested to learn more about his life story and how he went from, um, certainly at that time, um, being one of the people that was doing the most for black representation in mainstream theater um, and had many commercial successes um, to such a tragic end. And I can only imagine what that trajectory was, but I would love to know more if there's somebody out there who happens to know more about him. Um, in in the later 1800s and getting into the 1900s, Burt Williams and George Walker found fame. And it, they starred in, in 1903 specifically, they starred in In Domini, the first, um, please tell me if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, the first Broadway musical written and performed by African Americans. Um, then in 1911, the Zigfield Follies premiered. And most people familiar with Broadway history are familiar with the Zigfield Follies. It's one of the big beats that gets hit in every history. 
Um, Florent Ziegfeld was one of the first big impresarios, and he would have his follies in, you know, big theaters where there would be, it was sort of a, a big precursor to vaudeville, where there was not an integrated storyline. It was a series of different acts. So they, there would be big numbers with showgirls. There would be, uh, if Fanny Bryce was very famous at the time, um, if you know the musical Funny Girl, very much about the Ziegfeld Follies. Um, and then they would get, you know, artists um, like Al Jolson and Burt Williams who would come out and do numbers in blackface. So it was a series of unrelated vignettes. There would be comedians and whatnot. Um, so yeah, sort of unrelated vignettes. And there would constantly be new Follies and new um, versions of the show happening all the time. In 1921, the landmark hit musical Shuffle Along came to New York um, and began to tinker with the pattern of segregation. It was a milestone in the development of the black musical and became the model by which all black musicals were judged well into the 1930s. Um, more recently, just a couple years ago, forgive me, I can't remember the exact year offhand, um, there was, I don't really want to call it a revival because it wasn't really a revival. It was a combination revival of Shuffle Along and history of how the show was created that was done on Broadway, starred Audrey McDonald. I highly, highly recommend that you go and check it out. It talks about the importance of Shuffle Along, the history of Shuffle Along, and the artists that created it way more beautifully and eloquently than I could possibly do in a podcast, let alone just a snippet of a podcast where I'm just sort of trying to hit basic beats. Um, but I really recommend that if you're not familiar, you go check out that musical. Um, it's beautiful. It recreates a lot of moments from the original Shuffle Along, but also very much delves into how the piece was created. Um, I do believe that that revival, again, revival is not necessarily the correct term for it, but I'll call it that for expediency's sake, um, was helmed by white producers. Um, I do not remember offhand if there were black producers um, working on the show. I certainly hope that there were. There were an enormous number of black artists working on the show, obviously. Um, but also, if anybody out there um, knows anything about maybe differences between that revival and the original Shuffle Along or inaccuracies, I'd be very interested to learn about that as well. I, I wasn't able to find as much about that. Um, into the late 1920s and the 1930s, um, I know we're kind of jumping <laughs> a little bit, um, TAP became a Broadway mainstay. And black performers became more prominent in white story musicals, um, such as uh, notably the Nicholas Brothers. Um, the Nicholas Brothers were um, actual brothers, um, wonderful, wonderful black tap dancers who, again, please forgive me if I get any of this wrong. Please feel free to correct me. I believe their Broadway debut was in Rodgers and Hart's musical Babes in Arms. Um, which was later adapted into the Judy Garland movie. The Judy Garland movie is extraordinarily different from the Broadway musical. Um, and they came out and they did their specialty routines and were truly, truly extraordinary. Um, but black dancers were still not allowed to dance with white dancers. So what tended to happen frequently was that um, black artists might have come out and do specialty routines, like the Nicholas Brothers, for example, um, but they weren't allowed to dance with the white women in the cast, which ended up taking them out of many ensembles. Or if they happened, if there happened to be a couple black artists in an ensemble, they were not in many numbers because of this restriction. Um, one of the other things that happened at this time, which um, my wonderful collaborator Jeffrey Denman was the person who brought it to my attention. He's done enormous research into this period um, of theater history, and um, I highly recommend that you check out his his work. Um, but one of the things that he educated me about was the fact that 
um, because tap was becoming so popular at this time, but it was extremely difficult for black artists to be in commercial shows on Broadway, what would end up happening was a lot of white artists and a lot of white choreographers and white dancers would go and watch black tappers, whether it was in another venue, sometimes they would be um, hoofing on the street corner, and they would steal their dance moves, and they would go and watch what they did and be like, hey, thanks, and then they would go and put their choreography in their shows, and the black artists were never obviously credited or compensated or anything like that. So it's just, I, I find it really important when we go back and watch footage from those times that we remember that very frequently the person who was credited with the choreography is not really the person who came up with all that choreography. And there were a lot of unbelievably talented black artists um, who was were really doing that work that made all of those shows successful, um, many of whom we will never know their names um, because they were not allowed to be a part of this world and they, their, their material was just flat out stolen. Um, another thing that was going on at this time, and again, is not really recorded in, in a, a lot of books, is there are a lot of composers of the time who would use black singers to workshop material on. So um, I don't want to quote any composers specifically. I believe I know some of them, but I don't want to say something wrong or incorrect. Um, but famous composers that would, you know, spend time in Harlem, they would hear black singers who were really incredible and they'd be like, Hey, you know, come, come on down. We're working on this new song and we need to try it out. And this black performer would come over and they'd sing it and they'd make some changes and they'd be like, Oh my gosh, you're amazing. And then that black artist would never be allowed to perform it in the show. They would never be allowed in the show at all. And so I think it's very important to, remember and be knowledgeable and educated about the influence that black artists were having in all of the commercial theater that was happening at the time, very, 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 especially during the 1920s and 30s, where their material was flat out ending up in commercial shows, and we just don't know their names because they weren't credited and they weren't allowed to perform it themselves, um, which makes me very angry, and I, I wish that there was more knowledge about that and more material out there about that. Um, in 1935, George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess became the most famous black musical of the 1930s, um, though it's very important to note that it was not written by black writers. Um, and contrary to what the creators claimed, it was not of the, quote, Negro inspiration. Um, it was, it, yeah, um, the, George Gershwin wanted to write um, a folk opera, an American opera, and he was very, very influenced by um, black art and music, um, and so went ahead and used that material, um, but it was not a story that came from Black America. Um, black Americans did not um, help create it, except that it was a Black cast, so certainly they influenced it in terms of being in it. Um, and then in 1937, there was a show called The Swing Mikado, which was a modernization of Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta um, that was a black version of the story that succeeded and twisted the new realm of musical theater by updating a classic and it became a big success and it was one of the first moments of updating a classic in some way and changing it that then you know obviously still to this day is something that is very frequently done on broadway 
In the 1920s and the 1930s, many successful Broadway musicals were adapted for the screen. Um, there was the giant exodus out to Hollywood because of the talkies. Um, suddenly, you know, um, um, artists that had been very famous during the silent era, a lot of them found that they just weren't good at speaking. And so Hollywood came and started to grab talent from Broadway because that's what they needed for the talkies. And it was everything from, it's how the Marx Brothers got their start. You know, the Marx Brothers started on Broadway and then they were pulled out to Hollywood, obviously became very famous. And it's a lot of other artists, obviously. Um, Bill Bojangles Robinson is one that I'm thinking of. And they also came to Broadway to look for material. So they would take Broadway musicals and then adapt them. Um, so, like I just said, many successful Broadway musicals were adapted for the screen, um, and that included bringing blackface numbers. Um, and as I mentioned before, especially notable is the Judy Garland um, blackface number in Babes in Arms. Um, though, as I said, that particular number was not in the original musical on Broadway, and the show as a whole bears strikingly little resemblance to the Rodgers and Hart musical on Broadway. Um, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm going through my notes and wanting to make sure that I don't miss anything. So this is literally where many um, non-Black-centric books and resources end on the subject of um, Black musical theater in America. I, I did a lot of research, and this is kind of where it just stopped. And that, that made me really angry. I, I tried to... Um, Again, there, I'm sure many of you out there are far more knowledgeable than I. I tried to, I tried to do extensive research to find out um, when and technically if blackface was legally outlawed in America. I could find no information on the subject. Um, I do know that blackface continued as a mainstay in American film until about 1948, um, but that doesn't mean that it was absent after that date. Um, whether that means, and again, I'm rather ignorant on this particular subject, though I did try to do everything I could to educate myself. I don't know if there was a law passed. I don't know if it just simply fell out of fashion. I don't know if it that's around when it became non-PC. Um, it definitely still happened, um, and it wasn't just blackface. You know, there's um, a, lot of, a lot that's been written about um, white people playing races that should never have happened. Um, that certainly continues up until today. There were a lot of white performers that um, played Native Americans. There have been very infamous um, moments of yellow face of white actors um, playing Asian characters. One of the most widely referenced is when Mickey Rooney um, played a yellow face character in Breakfast at Tiffany. Um, and then even more recently is when um, Emma Stone played a Hawaiian woman um, in, I can't even remember the name of the movie. Um, there's a really, I'm, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you've seen this movie, but I really highly recommend that everybody check out the incredible film Bamboozled. Um, I, I think it, it's a wonderful, I don't even know how to sum it up or explain it. It's a, it's a wonderful look at how black artists are viewed in this country, even up until today. Um, it's, it's basically a story about how, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't even know how to give too much away. I don't want to give too much away, but, um, about, um, a TV show that is 
trying trying to like be offensive so it like doesn't have to be on the air anymore or something I might be getting that wrong but basically decides oh well we'll bring back blackface because that'll you know people will be upset by that so they find two wonderful black performers who agree to do blackface and it becomes this runaway hit of a show and it starts raising all these questions about why why is that entertaining why was it entertaining why do people potentially still find it entertaining now and then it also looks at how um just people in society start changing their behavior as a result of exposure to this. It's an extraordinary um, movie. It's a musical. It's great. Um, I really highly recommend watching it. It's, it's, I, I love that film. Um, yeah, but that's kind of where specifically black history musical theater ends. Um, obviously eventually Legally, the end of segregation came and more shows started to become more integrated. But I think that our history as American musical theater, um, I don't want to, I'm sure that this is similar to other Western cultures as well, but I'm not as familiar with the specific history of those. And the American musical originated here and then, you know, went other places. But I think that a lot of the roots of things that happen today seep back into what was before in terms of um, finding entertainment from stereotypes, um, in terms of even, you know, even, I don't know, when we talk about, I don't know if integrating musicals is the right word because we certainly, you know, it, it we're not in quite the same situation that we were in the 1920s in terms of an integrated cast, but we do still have um, controversy when it comes to things. I mean, I know how much white America seems to speak up when, um, say, there is a black performer cast in something like Les Mis, when they're like, um, the argument goes, you know, this needs to be historically accurate, you know, as though there weren't black people in, in France or Europe at the time. When the wonderful Kiki Palmer became the first black Cinderella on Broadway, um, by the way, I saw her, I thought she was phenomenal, and there was outrage from members of the white community about it um, to the recent controversy about um, Disney casting a black woman as Ariel in their live-action Little Mermaid. Um, I don't know why these are still a thing. Um, I certainly take great umbrage with it in general. And then specifically when I hear arguments about shows that are set in, you know, the 1920s and 30s and whatnot, um, there absolutely should be black performers there. There should have been black performers there in the actual times, but their voices were silenced. Um, there's a lot of shows that take up tons of space in Broadway musical history books like Showboat that never address really um, what was going on in terms of black artistry in those shows. Um, I think if you know anything about Broadway, we're all familiar with Showboat and Old Man River and the character of Julie and the fact that the character of Julie is very often cast as a white woman. Um, so yeah, um, there there is a story that I would love to share that I've been privy to this story for a long time. Um, I did double extra research to make sure it was true before sharing it on this podcast. But um, this is a story that I think we should all know and we should all maybe be having a conversation about. Um, so 
the wonderful musical Once Upon a Mattress, um, it was written by Mary Rogers, who was Richard Rogers' daughter and the mother of Adam Gettle, actually. More trivia there for you. Um, Once Upon a Mattress, it's really adorable. It's a musical version of the fairy tale of Princess and the Pea. And it was originally done in the 60s, starring Carol Burnett as the princess. So this is, this is how the story goes. So apparently, the production team of Once Upon a Mattress, the original production, was having a great deal of trouble finding an actress to play Queen Agravain. Um, for those of you not familiar with the show, Queen Agravain is um, the, 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 queen, the mother of the prince in the story. She's the one that doesn't approve of this princess coming in. She's a giant leading role. She has these amazing songs. Um, she's this like comic antagonist. Um, and they could not find somebody who could do this part. They couldn't find somebody who had the, the right comic chops and could sing it the way they needed to and had the present. They, ju they just couldn't find the person. And at this point, the entire rest of the cast had been cast. I mean, um, Carol Burnett was doing Winifred the Princess. They'd cast everybody else. The King and the Sun um, had both been cast and both were being played by white performers. So apparently at the 11th hour... The casting director, I don't know who the casting director was, said to the team, okay, I have somebody, I think she's perfect for this role, but she's an out-of-the-box choice. Is it okay if I bring her in for you to see? And they're like, yes, we're desperate, please bring anybody in. So the woman that she brought in was a very notable black performer named Jane White. She was a Broadway actress. Um... And she'd done lots of lovely things, and she came in, and apparently she killed her audition and blew this role out of the water. Like, it was clear that nobody else could play this role except for her. So the creative team gets together and chats for a minute, and they turn back to Miss White, and they say, okay, so here's the deal. Um, we really want you for this role. There's nobody else who can do it. We've cast the rest of the people that would be your family. How would you feel and would you be comfortable doing this role in whiteface? Okay. Now the story gets so much better. Um, Jane White was the daughter of Walter Francis White, who was a notable civil rights leader and the national secretary of the NAACP from 1931 to 1955. Um, apparently their home up in Harlem was I don't I don't remember the name specifically. I think it was called it was something called like the the Black White House or something because so many notable black leaders were there all the time. And this was the woman who they asked this of and she's like, "Okay, well, can I think about it for a little bit?" And they're like, "Sure, sure." So, she called up her father and was like, "Hey, so I got offered the lead in this big deal new musical and they asked me if I would do it in whiteface." And I wish I had a direct quote, because I'm sure whatever I say is not going to be nearly as great as what was actually said. But apparently her father said something along the lines of, hey, they've been making us dress up in blackface for years. I say go for it. And so she agreed. And if you Google search the, um, the role of Queen Agravain, like comma, Once Upon a Mattress, comma, Carol Burnett, there are beautiful black and white still photos from the show. And when you see photos of the queen, it is this wonderful black actress, Jane White, who did the role in whiteface. It was a, it was a subtle whiteface. It was meant to be as realistic as possible, um, but she did it in whiteface. And that's a story that I never really heard people talk about. I find it really 
interesting and thought that it should be a public story that we share and talk about. Um, this obviously is a very, very brief overview of the, the immense contributions of black artists to Broadway American musicals. Um, I've done a lot of research and I'm still horrified by how little I found. Um, if anybody can direct me to more information, I'd really love to educate myself more. And I hope that what this podcast can do is, in addition to just um, talking about a few things that you may not know, and you know we, we should know, um, can galvanize you to want to go out and learn more and for people to write more about this. Um, because the Broadway American musical has stolen a great deal from Black America and owes a great deal to Black America and has never been credited with it and is still largely being kept out of the conversation. Um, we're still whitewashing things. I mean, the fact that the idea of not doing an all-white production of Hairspray is controversial today is horrifying. And one other thing that I would just like to share um, as an ending note to this um, you know, as, as I said at the beginning, I think that what white America needs to be doing right now is stepping back and listening, um, to black America and learning and educating. Um, but <laughs> maybe some white people out there will listen to me because I happen to be white. And so there's something that I would like to share that I think uh, might be helpful. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I've been trying to think about when I first became aware of racial differences and about thing, terrible things that um, white people have done in the history of this country. And I started remembering back to my early days in school. And keep in mind, I, um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I primarily went to schools where... Um, that, that were very, very diverse. Um, sometimes um, as a white student, I was the minority. I'm very, very grateful for that. So this is something that's coming from an urban center. It's not a story that's coming from a predominantly white neighborhood somewhere. Um, I remember in kindergarten, we learned about the pilgrims and the Native Americans and like the discovery of the country by Columbus, just I use discovery in air quotes, um, because we were going to do a big Thanksgiving like show for the parents that year. And I remember like listening to the general sanitized version that all kids kind of get told. And I've always been the little Hermione Granger. So I remember sitting there and I would raise my hand and I'm like, okay, so wait a minute. So the native Americans were here first and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and we just like came and the teacher's like, well, yeah. And I said, well, where are the Native Americans now? Like, where are their tribes and stuff? And they're like, oh, well, you know, they don't, they're not really around anymore. And some of them, you know, they, they live on reservations and that's like where they're trying, like, they, they like were really trying to like dance around the issue. And I remember saying, so we came and we stole their land from them. That's horrible. We're horrible. We should give it back. We should like leave. And the sudden emotional and verbal gymnastics that I remember teachers doing because they were worried that I as a white child was going to feel badly about being white 
stunned me even then and it stuns me more now oh well we didn't do it we weren't we weren't here and you know like think that was a different time and like things are better now and you didn't do anything wrong it was it was it was like they were they were the idea that I could feel badly about something that people of my ethnicity had done was the worst thing that could possibly happen and I watched that happen again when I learned about slavery and I expressed (laughs) similar horrors of, well, wait, how could we do that? That's terrible. We should, you know, make changes. We should, I, I said something equivalent of we should make reparations. So I didn't know that word at the time. Oh, well, you, you didn't do that. We didn't do that. We weren't here. My ancestors weren't slave owners. And, you know, that was a different time. And I, I think I have a feeling that if every white American who was schooled here really thinks back that we probably all have a story or two like that, that the, that, that are feeling badly about something that our ethnic people, whether or not us specifically, or even our ancestors specifically had done feeling bad about our identity was like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I think that I would like to use my platform to encourage white America to think about that and to sit in the discomfort of that because technically my teachers were right. My, I I know my ancestry, my ancestors, um, were not American slave owners. Um, I certainly was not a slave owner. Um, but I am part of a race who people who look like me have perpetrated that and have done that and have done terrible things. And we have benefited from privilege and from generally being the ruling ethnic group in the world for a very long time. And whether or not we specifically did something wrong, um, which by the way, we're all humans. We all have done something wrong. I'm sure um, that we need to take responsibility for that Um because we now represent the lineage of that and it's our job to change that in whatever capacity you can. If you're a theatrical artist, let's change, change it from there, change the social systems. You know, it's, it's our turn to do it. And I think we need to stop being so afraid of feeling bad because sometimes feeling bad can be a really positive thing because only when you feel bad can you move toward rectifying things and making changes. Um, hopefully I can be one voice that is starting to, um, to, to say that and use my forum and I'm sure people will get mad because <laughs> this is a forum about theater. Um, but I just, I felt like it, it was something that I should do. So if you take nothing else away from this, um, support black voices. Um, listen, let's, um, let's listen, let's educate ourselves. Um, and I especially feel very passionate right now. Um, especially after everything that I've been reading about for the past, um, while in preparation for this of let's find the black voices who haven't been given a voice. Um, let's find the black playwrights, um, who haven't been produced let's find the black musical theater performers who haven't been given an opportunity and, um, you know, let's start making up for lost time because I think it's about time we did that. So 
for all of that, <laughs> I'm your theatrical Hermione Granger, Ashley Griffin. Thank you so much for listening to Stage Directions. Um, I would love for this podcast episode to be a jumping off point for conversation and for education. I would love to learn more about this subject. Um, if anybody out there feels like educating me, I am here and would love to listen and learn. Um, and yeah, so thank you very much. And let's all go out and support each other um, and support the black voices in our lives and around this country and the world.